Blockbuster had filled this giant vacuum faster than anybody else. What they didn't figure out how to do was run a great store. They figured out how to open a whole bunch really, really fast, but they weren't particularly well run. And anybody that really dug into it back then could figure that out. Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Unglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk about some of the things that don't always make it into our stories. This is The Backroom. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today's savviest merchants have figured out how to improve conversion rates by over 50% and average order value by up to 20%. What's their secret? Split it, a completely different way to think about buy now, pay later. Check out splitit.com forward slash backroom to see how Split It can help transform your e-commerce business. Welcome to The Backroom. We are here today with Alan Payne. He is the author of a book that came out earlier this year called Built to Fail, the inside story of Blockbuster's inevitable bust. Alan was a former franchisee of Blockbuster, and the store chain is actually a subject we've come back to several times at Retail Dive and on this podcast, uh, partly for personal reasons. I worked there myself for a number of years before becoming a journalist. Alan, uh, I'll let you tell us a little bit about how you came to the company and why you chose to write this book. Well, the, the book is the complete story because I was in the business from the beginning of Blockbuster until the very end. I actually competed with them in the mid 80s and early 90s, uh, running freestanding video stores that were called Video Central. And they were owned by one of the great retailers in the country called HEB Grocery Company. And anybody that's not from Texas may not know about that. But currently their sales are almost $30 billion a year. They're the largest grocery company in Texas. And they've always been the market share leader in the markets that they're in. And back in the 80s, they, they decided, since they owned a bunch of real estate, that they didn't want to lease it to Blockbuster. So they just opened some freestanding stores on their own. And I ran those stores for HEB for seven years. And we were very, very successful against Blockbuster, running the business quite differently than how they ran it. But uh, Charles Butt, who owned HEB, decided he wanted to completely focus on on the grocery business. So he decided to sell the stores. And there were 35 of them at the time. He sold them for almost a million apiece. That's when I left HEB and joined a, uh, a Blockbuster franchise group. And that was in 1993. And an interesting sidelight of that story is those 35 stores, actually it turned out to be 33, were sold to none other than Hollywood Video, who had only about a dozen stores at the time. They used that purchase to go public and five years later had about 1,500 stores. So the sale of those HEV Video Central stores actually, in some ways, gave birth to Hollywood Video, which became Blockbuster's largest competitor. And then I spent my next 25 years with Blockbuster as a franchisee, actually running the stores the first seven years for the people that owned them. And then I purchased them from them in 2000. And then we didn't close our last store until 2018, which was eight years after Blockbuster filed bankruptcy. And the reason, as I detailed in the book, is we, we just ran the business completely differently, much more like we ran the business at HEB than how Blockbuster ran the I mean, you have sort of a unique position of being both a company insider and a company outsider. 
by virtue of being a, a franchisee and, and you, you, you guys had a, and I worked for a blockbuster franchise as well. One of the larger ones, major video of Kansas as a franchisee, you had a lot of freedom to kind of run your own business. I mean, more than even like a McDonald's franchisee or a lot of other forms of franchise. And, and I mean, this comes up again and again and again in your book, you know, you tried to talk to management about, you know, topics, although, you know, across several CEOs, but there, there wasn't always an open line of communication. You know, I guess it doesn't hurt my feelings because they didn't listen to anybody. It wasn't just me. It bothered me a lot because from the time I took over those Blockbuster stores until the very end, we outperformed Blockbuster stores almost every year and most of the time by dramatic amounts. And it wasn't just an accident because we were truly doing running the business completely differently than how they ran it. But throughout all of those years, they never showed any interest whatsoever in what we were doing. None. And, and they showed no interest in what other franchisees were doing. And most important, they didn't have much interest in what companies like Netflix were doing until it was too late. In fact, as you know, I repeatedly tell the story in the book is they ignored competitors in every, every case until it was too late. I don't know why. The best I could ever figure is that they just lacked the interest and the curiosity about what really drove the business. They didn't understand their own stores very well, and they certainly didn't understand competition very well. The evidence of that is, is overwhelming. And I want to dig into some of the details of that, but I mean, you really saw the full trajectory of, of an entire sort of sector, of an entire industry, the rise and fall all throughout your book. And you see this in other stories about the industry. I mean, there's, you know, there's myopia, there's hubris, it, it, and it goes back even before Blockbuster, to the beginning of the industry with the Hollywood studios. And, and, and this is something you, you detail and you, you, you kind of drive home, but Hollywood tried to kill the video rental industry in its infancy before there was a Blockbuster. You know, they, they, saw, they saw video rental as a threat to their theater business. And it turned out, it, you know, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. You know, there were laws that were sponsored that, that could have killed the, the video industry. You know, there's no like massive startup behind it. There's no, there's no like Mark Zuckerberg inventing or, or, or Reed Hastings inventing video rental. There's not a ton of money behind it. There's, there are just all these mom and pops sort of creating an industry out of thin air that Hollywood tried to kill. And it ended up, once it grew, being one of the best things that ever happened to the movie business. It created this incredible retail channel and revenue stream that did not exist before. And it was, you said, you describe it as incremental. It was in addition to what they were making off of their theater sales. Yeah. The studios uh, had no comprehension of how valuable that content was, which today that's pretty remarkable because uh, they withheld it from the masses. Uh, you know, it would probably be good right now to talk about how it started because unless you remember those days, you don't remember that in 1985, you, you could not watch anything when you wanted to watch it. It was either in the theaters or it was on television and it was on the movie studios and the, and the television network schedule. There were no DVRs. There was no, no way to record programs. Uh, and then when the VCR came out, it was actually introduced to, uh, to record programs, a time shift to watch them when you wanted. 
And we all know that that didn't happen very much. And what happened is the studios decided to, to start selling movies and they thought those movies were worth at retail around a hundred dollars because people could watch them whenever they wanted. And it's another case. I mean, it's different from Blockbuster, but it's another case through the history of this industry where the smartest people in the room had no, supposedly smartest people in the room had, didn't understand their own product and, and didn't understand their own customers. Yeah. And I, in the research for the book, the best example I came across to illustrate it, Disney was one of the, the last people to start releasing their classic movies because they thought it would destroy the mystique. But they finally, you know, overall, a whole lot of opposition from some people on the board, including Roy Disney, they finally released Cinderella. And Cinderella did as much in revenue as they thought their entire catalog was worth. And of course, kind of the rest is history. They started releasing, if you remember back in those days, they would release one of their classics and then they would put it back in the vault for another seven years. They still controlled it, but not like they do today, which I think most of that product is available today at any time. But back then they would rotate it. You know, you'd get 101 Dalmatians and you'd get Snow White. And Yeah, I, I, remember, I, was, I was a kid at the time, so I was, I was the audience for that sort of yeah. slow drip. Yeah, it's shocking that they, that they didn't comprehend. And it was the same for all the studios, but especially for them. They had no idea the pinup demand that there was for that product if they just put it in front of the consumer. And of course, later on, the biggest example of it was uh, Lion King, which I think today is still the largest selling video of all time. And uh, they, they generated almost a half a billion dollars in revenue off of that one title. Do you remember what they priced Cinderella? Well, it was, you know, the retail price was twenty nine ninety nine, yeah. and uh, And this is 1980-something. Uh, boy, I can't, I think it was like 1989 or 90 or something yeah. like that. It was in that time frame. What everybody figured out is anything under $30 would attract sales. Uh, if it was over that, it wasn't going to sell very much. And what would happen is the, is the cost of that $29 product at retail was around $18, $19. So you would get the Walmarts of the world that would buy and sell at cost for $19.99 or sometimes even less. And, and that's, what, that's, that's what generated the explosion. And of course, there was a whole lot of learning going on in those days because we were figuring out what it took for people to want to buy movies and what they wanted to buy. Because when DVD came along a few years later, as everybody knows, it was all priced to sell. Not, not at extreme prices that forced it into, into the rental window. And that's really important to remember because in VHS days, most of the product that came out was priced at around 60 or $70 at cost, which essentially created a rental window. So it would, be in a, it would be in Blockbuster and all the video stores of the day for around six months before the studios would reduce the price to sell it directly to the consumer. The studios didn't do that because they necessarily wanted to, but what they found out is that until they were willing to sell it for around $20 or less at cost, customers weren't going to buy it. And they made a lot more money by creating that rental window. They generate a ton of revenue there. And then a few months later, they would sell it direct to the consumer. And when DVD came along, they blew all that up and there was no rental window anymore. The other interesting thing where, again, Hollywood kind of didn't understand its own base, its own customer. They assumed when they priced DVDs that way, it would turn enough 
customers into buyers that were renters. And they didn't understand that there would still be a huge rental market. I mean, it's it's hard to talk about one side without talking about the other. And where Blockbuster landed is kind of mind boggling. I want to back up real quick because you were talking about how the video store business got started. I think before we jump to DVD, let's talk for just a minute about how Blockbuster got started because it's it's really critical to the to the complete story because you had an industry there, as you pointed out, was created by a bunch of really undercapitalized entrepreneurs for the most part. And most of them were in it for a quick buck. And a lot of them, you know, sold a blockbuster later on, or later on when they got a, a chance to get out. And a lot of that was because the, the business was threatened legally. While the studios were trying to shut it down and trying to outlaw the VCR and try to outlaw video rental, these stores were continuing to pop up. But because that it was being challenged legally, Traditional retail didn't get into it, so there wasn't a whole lot of money behind it. So just through just through a lot a grassroots movement, they turned it into like this three or four billion dollar industry before Blockbuster ever got into the game. So when Blockbuster got into the game, the country was just ripe to be exploited because it had not been developed very well. Most of these video stores were not in good locations. They were not very large. A lot of them were dimly lit. Almost all of them had X-rated movies in them. It wasn't a family-friendly place. So Wayne Heisinger sees the opportunity, buys a, a company called Blockbuster that he didn't actually start. It was about 50 of them open when he bought it. But he recognized that the market for this was enormous and nobody was filling it the right way. So Heisinger, who had created Waste Management, which is still the largest trash company in the world, and had, and had left, had plenty of money and knew how to raise a lot more money. And that's what started Blockbuster. And within seven years, he had gone from 50 stores to 3,000 and sold the company to Viacom for $8.4 billion. And he had only put $18.5 million in it to buy. So that's what happened. I mean, Blockbuster filled this giant vacuum faster than anybody else. What they didn't figure out how to do was run a great store. They figured out how to open a whole bunch really, really fast, but they weren't particularly well run. And anybody that really dug into it back then could figure that out. They were just so much better than the, than the small video store of the day that it created this massive opportunity. And that ha that's how they got so big. So before we jump to DVD, I, th I thought that was important to, to get in there. Yeah. And, and there were, there were operational problems at Blockbuster's largest and, and the time that it was sold to Viacom. Maybe not apparent to the outside or even to the folks at Viacom, but... Well, the Viacom bought Blockbuster in 1994 for $8.4 billion. And they bought it for the cash flow. The cash flow started declining almost immediately after they bought it. There's a whole lot of reasons for that. A, whole, a big reason was Hollywood Video which was targeting their, their high volume stores and just demolishing their cash flow and, and a lot of their stores. And the reason for that was Hollywood, they were better operators at, at what they were doing. Well, they, they understood that new releases were really, really important. And they did some things to, to make them more available than Blockbuster. They had bigger inventories of new releases. They also had bigger inventories of catalog product and they priced it a lot less. And, and believe it or not, Blockbuster never got the memo back then that the catalog product 
was judged to be less valuable than new releases. Yet it wasn't until later on that they ever had a two-tiered pricing system in the stores. If you walked in a Blockbuster store that was corporately owned in 1985 or 1986, everything in the store was priced the same. And that's mind-boggling. I worked at a franchise and there was, I mean, the the older movies, we call them the Blockbuster favorites, were less than half the price. I think they they raised them a little bit. But when I started, they were like a buck fifty-nine. Most of the franchisees figured this out years before Blockbuster did. But it wasn't until John Antioco joined the company in 1997 that they finally, at long last, reduced the price of the catalog. And it was a huge benefit to the company. But up until that point, they had not done it. And when we would bring it up with them, because almost all the franchisees had already done it, because we recognized it was a massive weakness, primarily against Hollywood Video, they finally decided to, to do it. But that, along with some other things, you know, they were, they were so obsessed with growth, they were opening stores too fast. A lot of them were in bad locations. Eventually, their same store revenue just hit a wall. They weren't growing their existing stores much anymore. A lot of them were negative. And they were opening a lot of, of you know, pretty average to below average stores. And the, the growth, which Viacom was counting on, just hit a wall. Uh, yet they were still spending hundreds of millions of dollars opening stores. And within three years after Viacom had bought it, they were not generating enough cash to open the stores. In other words, the company was cash flow negative and only three years after they bought it. So that brings in the first financial crisis for Blockbuster and Netflix doesn't even exist yet. They're not even a company. So that's one of the huge points of the book is that most people think that Netflix streaming killed Blockbuster, and there's just nothing that could be further from the truth. The massive problems with Blockbuster started way before Netflix even existed. And in their cash flow problems specifically, what, how much of that is because of Hollywood video? Because because you point out that Hollywood targeted Blockbuster's most profitable stores. So even though Hollywood had way fewer stores than Blockbuster at the time, but they went up against Blockbuster's, you know, biggest cash producing stores, their most profitable stores. That's kind of the heart of your business right there. It was the same thing that we did with the Video Central stores at HEB. You know, when you went into a new market, the easiest way to figure out where to go was to find the busiest Blockbuster because, you know, they had already kind of figured out the real estate part of it. You go in and, and go across the street if you can because we knew that they had already created a business and we knew that we could devastate them. We would go into uh, across the street from Blockbuster and cut their sales in half. And Hollywood was doing the same thing to them, but only on a much, much larger scale. You know, they're opening a couple of hundred to 300 stores a year. And most of them were targeting Blockbuster stores. Some of them were targeting franchise stores. I mean, we dealt with it the same way corporate did. You know, one of our markets was El Paso. We had 10 stores there. Over the course of about, of about five years, they opened 10 against us. So they were doing that all over the country. And every time they would do that, if you didn't have a, a good marketing strategy to compete with it, they would cut your sales in half and they would cut your cash flow by about three-fourths. And this is by virtue of having what, better prices, bigger inventory. Bigger inventory, better prices. And in, in, some, in some cases, it would be better real estate because in the, in the course of opening, of developing a new market, you know, you might have taken a secondary site because you were in a hurry to get going. Or sometimes maybe the retail traffic patterns had changed, which left you vulnerable. There was all kinds of reasons why the second to the market can target 
the first one there. They hurt us just as bad as they did corporate, but we reacted and over the course of about four or five years, got, got all of our cash flow back and actually went back into a growth mode. Blockbuster never recovered from it very well. Let's talk about the the transition to DVD because we see this again and again and again with Blockbuster over the course of its history and, and all these changes in the sector where, you know, you have a business at that scale, thousands of stores, seemingly small operating differences, just being a good, curious, data-driven operator can make a huge difference across a business that large. And Blockbuster just as you, you know, in your words, kind of lacked curiosity, especially when it had franchises that were performing well that it could have used as as test cases for maybe things it could do differently. Again and again and again, you see it. DVDs are maybe one of the starker examples where it provided a kind of reset, potentially. As you point out, that they're priced way below what VHS were when they were first released. You know, VHS could go for 65 to 100 bucks. A DVD was priced at, for the retailer. What what would you buy it for? Like seventeen bucks? Yeah, average price is around seventeen dollars, as opposed to yeah. sixty dollars plus. And and uh, yeah. VHS. So, so your costs are coming way down. Yeah, the, of course. There's so much that can be said about this, and and anybody that was living in those days remembers the music business that just a few years prior to DVD had converted from the smaller cassettes music cassettes to uh, whatever they were called back then, but you remember the little cassettes. That was, that was the primary format along with uh, vinyl. When CDs came out, that really took over the industry. And so every music store of the day was forced to change from, from the small cassettes to CDs. And, and I actually, vinyl went away as well for the most part. And of course, recently it's made a comeback, but a music store, a Tower Records or Sound Music or all the, mu- the stores of the day back then, Sound Warehouse, I mean, they switched their entire inventories over to CDs over the course of about six or seven years. Well, Blockbuster had the exact same challenge when DVDs came along, but it was even more complicated than that because DVDs were created to kill Blockbuster and to kill the rental industry because the, the rental window went away when all DVDs came on the market at about a $17 cost. There was no rental window anymore. They went direct to all the Walmarts, all the mass merchants, everybody that, that, that wanted to sell movies immediately started stocking everything on the same day that, that the Blockbuster store got them. So it was a huge threat. And we knew that regardless of right. price, that up to this point, the- consumers had not shown a whole lot of interest in buying most movies. That was not the case for Disney movies or, or, or were most movies targeted at kids. But even massive hits at the theater, the studios figured out that they could make more money creating a rental window for it than they could selling it direct to customers. We thought that the same would happen with DVD. That a lot of the studios were, believed that the convenience of DVD and the higher quality would create this massive sell-through market that would, have, would essentially kill the rental market. In short, that's not what happened. We didn't think it would happen, but, but certainly we were concerned. What eventually happened is the rental market was kind of flatlined. The growth stopped, but it didn't send it into decline. It just, it just stopped the growth. The sell-through part of it roughly tripled. So the studios got their cake and got to eat it too. The, the rental market stayed about flat, but the sell-through market tripled. 
so they've got a win-win situation. And the thing is, the video store had a win-win situation too because the, because the studios had not killed us. What they did is they gave us an opportunity to stock more product for less money, satisfy more customers, drove our gross margins way, way up. And anybody that managed it right made more money. And many of us managed to grow the business, even though the sell-through market had, had exploded. And I would think for that to work, you would need to lower prices because I, I mean, just intuitively, I'm a customer. I don't, I, yeah, I don't want to own everything I want to watch. You know, I might want to watch a movie every week, you know, every weekend, but I don't need all of them in my house forever. <laughs> there was not a lot of pressure to reduce the price of new releases because people were very comfortable paying three, four dollars. And in some markets, even five dollars to rent a DVD new release that there wasn't a lot of pressure to bring that price down. That was still viewed as a, as a good price as opposed to buying it for $20. Where the pressure was and where Blockbuster totally missed it, there was huge pressure to reduce the price of catalog because you could buy most catalog movies at Walmart and all the dump bins that you would see in there for $5, sometimes less. So there was, if you were going to rent that, that, you know, Scarface or whatever, it needed to be priced a whole lot less than you could buy it at Walmart. Blockbuster never did that. Never. They continued to try to rent old DVDs for, in many cases, about the same price that you could buy it. Never made sense at all to me. Plus, they actually reduced the size of their catalog inventories. If you think about it, and we got to put all this in the, in, the, in the proper timeline. This all started in 1997, which ironically was the same year that Netflix started. I mean, the DVD basically made Netflix possible. And you're not going to be sending VHS through the mail <laughs> like a dozen times. There had been thoughts of doing it, but everybody who looked into the business model knew it wouldn't work. You couldn't send a VHS through the mail. And it's also the reason kiosk didn't work. And of course, so the DVD gave rise to Netflix and eventually gave rise to, to Redbox. It's important to remember that, the, that video stores were always much, much, much bigger than Netflix ever was. It took about uh, almost 10 years for DVD to completely replace VHS. But if you think about, it was a massive challenge because for video stores, because when a customer bought a DVD player, it was so superior to VHS in terms of quality and ease of use and every, everything. When they walked into a Blockbuster store, they wanted a DVD. They didn't want a VHS. So as that group of customers got bigger, there was a need to have as much inventory in DVD as you did VHS. It was a huge challenge because it, what, what we did in our stores after the DVD customer base got to about 20, 30% of, of the business, we basically divided our store down the middle. And so a customer that walks in the door is going to go right to DVD or left to VHS because they didn't want the VHS for, for obvious reasons. There was a huge amount of pressure on us to build up our inventory in DVD as fast as we possibly could because we didn't want to lose the VHS customer to Netflix or somebody else when they were switching over to DVD. Blockbuster never did that. They never to the day they closed their last store, they never rebuilt their catalog inventories sufficiently. They did some, but they didn't do it sufficiently. 
they were much smaller in DVD days than they were in VHS, and they were way, way overpriced. The amount of data in Blockbuster system was remarkable. I mean, we took names, we took addresses, we took birth dates. We had birth dates of some of the, you know, the kids and the spouses on the account. We had their rental history going back. I, I mean, months, if not years. Yeah, I, it, was, I, it was years. I can't it was recall years. How, how far those systems. And those systems, I think, were run on DOS. Oh, yeah. They were, they were, they were, and they were never up <laughs> In the early 2000s. Yeah. It, which, and and that, that's another issue. But, I mean, just tremendous amounts of data, latent data in their systems. They weren't mining it. They weren't analyzing it. They weren't looking at, I mean, you didn't even have the capabilities to understand. They would tell you that they were and that, and, and, and Wall Street would, would fall for it. But there was very little actionable data mining going on in Blockbuster. And I'll just give this, the obvious example is Netflix, which came in and built a business renting primarily old movies that Blockbuster didn't think anybody wanted to see. That's the most obvious. But if you but if you go back to when I got involved with Blockbuster, one of the first things I wanted to find out, because it was very important to how we manage the business at HEB, I wanted to know how much the catalog was running in the stores. And I kid you not. And, and again, here, catalog means older movies. Yeah, catalog is, is going to be primarily anything over a year old that's come off the new release wall and has gone onto the floor. This still is mind-boggling to me that when I got there, I asked our product manager, give me a breakdown of the, of, of the rentals in the stores. They couldn't do it. It was not there. They could, they could break it down by category. But in my view, that was almost irrelevant. What I wanted to know was how much comedy on the floor was renting, how much drama was renting on the floor. They could not tell you. And we figured out some ways to work around the system to figure it out. And we had we had had reports in our company that tracked it every every month. But and did you show corporate how to do that? Well, of course, but they didn't <laughs> they, care. Yeah, it just was just unimportant to them. So when we would be talking about, well, we're generating X amount of rents and X amount of revenue out of our catalog section, how is yours doing? They didn't know. It's mind-boggling to think that a company that size didn't even know basic information like that. And, and, and they thought that obviously the information was not important or they would have done it. A lot of it was because Blockbuster was built on the back of new releases. They didn't think catalog was important. About 90% of their revenue came out of new releases. In our company, it was up to around 30, 30% or more, and it was over half of the rents. I mean, we, we rented it a lot cheaper, so it didn't, you know, proportionally, it wasn't generating as much revenue. But when a customer walked in one of our Blockbuster franchise stores, almost every one of them walked out with a catalog movie along with their new release if they rented one at all. And of course, those catalog movies were almost 100% profit because you weren't having to replenish them very much. And then the key to that is Netflix comes along and because of their business model, they recognize that they cannot effectively compete in new release availability with a store because the product is, is tied up in, in transport too much. So they make this all-out attempt to try to convince their subscribers that they'll be just as happy with an older movie than the new one. Well, they succeeded because they, they created this subscription business through the mail, and about 80% of all the movies that they were sending out were, were catalog movies. 
It's, it's one of the big reasons that Blockbuster never really understood how Netflix was generating a profit because they couldn't relate to a business that was essentially doing the exact opposite of what they were doing. And I think they assumed that Netflix would not be sustainable because they could not compete effectively with new releases. And I think, and I wish I could get this confirmed and talk to the Netflix people, but as you know, they don't talk very much. Even Ted Sarandos, who I knew back in those days, I can't get him to talk to me. But I think that they learned a lot about the demand for older product, and they just transitioned that over into their streaming business years later. Because as you know, a lot of what they stream and still do is old stuff. Blockbuster was just caught completely off guard. They never understood that part of the business. What's your theory theory as as to why not? I mean, you were beating that drum uh, again across multiple CEOs through the years, and I mean, none of them came from rental. But you know, John Antiaco was was a retail person. Well, John Antiaco had the longest stint of CEO at Blockbuster. He was there for ten years, so I don't think he could use the excuse of, well, I, I didn't grow up in the rental business, therefore I didn't understand it. And that's why I got caught. I mean, he, he always acted like he knew everything. So he had plenty of time to, to really learn the business, but I don't think he ever did. And I think a lot of it was because he was, he was just not that interested in it. He was getting what he wanted out of it. There's a reason why he didn't pay attention to Netflix. There's a reason why he didn't even study the company when they offered to sell themselves to Blockbuster for $50 million, they had one meeting. I tell the story in the book of one of the very early trailblazers in the DVD kiosk business, Greg Meyer. He tried to get Blockbuster to on board with, with DVD kiosk in 2002. And they wouldn't talk to him past a one, a one hour presentation. I think they just, for whatever reason, they just did not have much curiosity about the business and what was going on around them. It sounds terrible, but some of the people that I talked to that knew John Antioco very well blamed a lot of it on him because he just wasn't engaged in the business. Some people very close to him called him lazy, called him unengaged, said he thought, thought they thought he was above it all, that he wouldn't engage in an in-depth conversation about the business with hardly anybody. In my opinion, is he didn't know a whole lot about it because he wasn't all that interested in it. You know, I, I tell the story in the book. I was on a plane with him for eight hours one day and got to, got to talk to him about it. I didn't get anywhere because he didn't really have an interest in talking about the detail of the business. And we're just talking about the nitty gritties of being day to day a good operator, just st- studying your customers, studying your products, studying your inventory, mining your data experimenting with price, looking at different parts of the business and comparing them and to find, talking to the people. Exactly. Who are... and, and you can imagine coming from a grocery company where if you, mo- if you can move a number a tenth of a point, that could be millions of dollars because it's, it's a low margin business. So I just came from a culture of trying to look at everything in detail and trying to move things just a, a tenth of a point or so. And it was really much, much easier in the video business than it was the grocery business. And that's what was so, what was so frustrating to me. I didn't think of it, the rental business was that complicated. It, I mean, it really wasn't. I mean, it was, it, and that's what made it so much fun because you could, you could study things and, and, and move the needle pretty easily. And I just never saw blockbuster interest in that. I mean, I think it's an issue throughout retail. 
it's different today than it was in the 90s where you know everyone's adding stores to add i mean it, you know Wayne Huzinga he traded expansion for for you know deep operating values and maybe maybe a lot of retailers did that i mean those days are have been gone for for a while but i think in the broader retail industry we've seen heavy focus on marketing and branding and i think that's starting to give way more to a tighter focus on on operating and and supply chain and, and things like that and and analytics into your business and i mean i i think the pandemic has kind of driven it home too where in, in some of the issues in some of the 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 traffic declines that that preceded the pandemic where everyone is just little operating differences across a big business can make a huge difference in in profit or or sales if you really want to run a great business you've got to be better at satisfying the customer than everybody else. And to me, the best way to understand that is to follow the data. We can have all the kind of gut feels in the world about everything, but it's meaningless unless we can back it up with data. And that's what would frustrate me so much about Blockbuster in all those days. You know, they would come up with some promotion that felt good to them and you would throw some data back at them and go, well, here's why that can't work. And they didn't want to talk about it on that level. It was, oh, we got to do this because. Well, you didn't have anything to back it up other than how it felt to you. That happened over and over and over. Instincts and vision are wonderful. And, and sometimes you got to just, you know, throw rationale to the wind and go take a chance. And that's okay. But be honest with yourself and study it afterward to find out if you were right. And what Blockbuster would do is they would run these promotions and try to convince Wall Street that they knew what they were doing. And when they, when it didn't work, they wouldn't admit it didn't work because they were trying to, to keep their credibility with Wall Street. So they would, they would come up with some lame excuse for, of why it didn't work and then turn right around and not learn from it and do something stupid again. And it happened over and over and over again. I describe it in my book as just the gimmicky solutions of the day. Instead of digging into what was causing certain things, you know, it was like they were sitting around the conference table someday and somebody throw out an idea. Well, that sounds cool. Let's do that. That was about, in many cases, the way it looked to me, that was about as much thought as went into it. Uh, and I tell the story in, in, in there about a DVD promotion that they ran in 2004 that we thought was one of the dumbest things we'd ever seen. And sure enough, four weeks after they launched it, they had to come out and, and admit that, that it had crashed and the stock lost a billion dollars in a day because they had to come out and tell the truth about what had happened. And I won't go into the details, it's in the book, but it was one of the most ill-advised promotions I've ever seen in my life. And we all knew it wouldn't work. And we told them it wouldn't work, but they did it anyway. And it crushed their stock uh, just a few weeks after it. I mean, if you had to guess, in your opinion, if Blockbuster had been a company that was more curious, that did use the data at its disposal, that did price better, that it did all the things that you think it did wrong better, how long do you think Blockbuster could have kept on for if it, if it had been a better operator? Well, I like to think of it this way. Netflix used what they learned by mailing DVDs to customers to transition to streaming. That business was never 
near as large as Blockbuster. There was no reason why Blockbuster couldn't have used what they learned in their stores, which was always a much, much bigger business than Netflix by mail. There's no reason they couldn't have used that information to transition to streaming, but they didn't. What happened was that, you know, Reed Hastings and Netflix started doing it in 2007. Blockbuster had not even thought about that and had no plans to do it. They had matched them on the on the by mail business with an inferior product and had and had been beaten miserably. Uh, now Blockbuster would tell you differently, but that's just not the case. They were getting killed by Netflix by mail. Partially in Blockbuster's defense, I think everybody needs to realize this is that nobody, including the studios, thought that Netflix was going to be anything what they turned out to be. Hastings was the only one that, that viewed streaming as the answer, as the, as the way to get digital video into homes via the internet, as opposed to pay-per-view and things like that that had been around for years. And that's the way the studios wanted to do it. They wanted to, to basically rent things to people on cable and through satellites and eventually over the internet. They did, none of them viewed, viewed a subscription model as, as working. And that's why, think of all the years that have passed before somebody finally decided, okay, that is the future. We're going to do something about it. Disney Plus. They'd only did it, what, a year and a half ago. It took that long for the studios to recognize, yeah, that's the business. And, and we're, going to, we're going to have to match it. And now you see all the other studios jumping on board. So it wasn't just Blockbuster that missed it. I mean, every, everybody missed it. Everybody missed it. And your franchise kept performing until well into the, you know, the decade that just ended. Um, Family Video, another, you know, it, it was the last big video chain. Yeah. Um, it kept kicking along and it, it entered 2020 with like 500 stores, but mm -hmm. the pandemic kind of knocked it out. Um, it could have kept chugging along for, for a few years, if, if not the, if not for the pandemic. I think I think that Blockbuster, had they been able to transition into to streaming effectively, they could have used the stores to somehow facilitate that. And I think there could still be a few hundred stores open. And everybody I've talked to believes that too. It was a unique experience that needed to be refined a lot through the years and be made better. You know, we still had thousands of people coming in our stores just a little over two years ago when we closed the last ones. There was still a demand for it. When, and streaming doesn't fully replace the video store. I mean, Netflix's movie catalog on streaming is, I mean, I can't find things to watch on, on a daily basis. Well, yeah. I mean, if you, if, if, if you want to stream everything that would have been in a well-stocked blockbuster of 10, 12 years ago, you'd have to subscribe to probably five or six different streaming services to get that. It's much less efficient, and that it sounds crazy, but a well-stocked video store in 2005 was a much better way, other than having to go to the store, but it would, it would have been cheaper, and everything would have been there if it was stocked properly. So you could have gone in a Blockbuster and got anything you wanted, as, as opposed to today where I, you know, I try to find something, I go on Roku and start searching for it. Well, I, I, I've subscribed to that. I don't subscribe to this. And then I got to figure out, okay, do I want to subscribe to this so I can watch that? It, it's, it's, you know, everybody's been through that. But back in those days, 
it was all in a, if a, if a Blockbuster store was stocked right, pretty much everything was there. Before we end things, Alan, any, any parting advice or uh, wisdom or warnings you would have for anyone out there running a, a retail business today? <laughs> I think, you know, you hear stories of great entrepreneurs and startup people that found you know, successful businesses and never transitioned to a great operating company. You know, there's a lot of them. Blockbuster's far from the only one. But I think because it's so visible and everybody knows who they were and everybody's familiar with what the product was, it's a great way to go study a business that was unbelievably successful for about 10 years, but really never transitioned the company from a startup to a great operating company. Never did. And that's why... Every time, and I'm not exaggerating, every time a new competitor came on the scene, they didn't know what to do. And they got beat every time. First, it was Hollywood Video. Then it was Netflix. Then it was DVD Express. Then it was Redbox. They didn't respond to any of those in an effective way. Not one time. So a great operator would have done that. Or, or at least would have had a better answer than Blockbuster had. Because every time, and what, what's most frustrating is that in every case, they would just ignore those competitors and really belittle them and make snide comments about how they weren't large enough to matter. Well, the problem is all competitors start small. Netflix started small. It is now the largest entertainment company in the world. But it was a tiny little company when it was trying to sell itself to Blockbuster in 2000 for $50 million. And I don't care how small it is, small companies can have great ideas. And Blockbuster did not have an interest in the ideas of anybody other than their own. And that played out time and time and time again. Well, Alan, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. I'm always happy to talk about this, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs>